We're studying, we're continuing to study the short letter of 1 John towards the end of the New Testament. If you want to make your way there, please do so. This short letter was written to a bunch of churches in and around the area of the ancient city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. The Apostle John knew these churches, many of them, uh, probably knew many of the members by name, perhaps helped start some of them. He's writing to these churches um, who were being hounded. So he's an old man. These churches have been in existence probably for some time. And over time, these churches started uh, to be hounded by false teachers who were telling them, telling these churches that, the, that they had this new secret knowledge about how to really know God and about how we really were supposed to live. I think Jared this morning in the training class talked a little bit about Gnosticism. It's very likely that these false teachers were kind of on the front end of what became Gnosticism. That there's a secret knowledge out there, a Gnosis knowledge, Gnosticism. There's a knowledge out there that only a a select special few have and that you have to attain to, to really know God and really know how to live and enjoy life. That's what these teachers were doing. And John comes along and says... No, <laughs> they're wrong. There is no new secret knowledge, and, and, and there's no new command. There's only the gospel and the old commands of loving one another and living holy lives. That really summarizes the entire book of 1 John, that uh, God has revealed Himself in Jesus Christ, and that those who claim to know God through Jesus Christ will live holy lives and love one another. That's First John. Knowing God means knowing Jesus, loving the brothers and sisters, and loving the things that God loves, or what we could call holiness. But these false teachers were preaching this message that undermined the original message of the apostles. They were contradicting the original message of the apostles, and these churches were being disrupted. Their fellowship was being disrupted. People were even leaving these churches to go to these quote-unquote, new churches or cults or whatever we want to call them because of these false teachers. John comes along again and says, no, if you want to truly know God, just keep believing the things that you've always believed and doing the things you've always done, the things that I taught you, the things that you've heard from the beginning. John says that the only way we can really belong to God is by loving and serving and knowing Jesus Christ and loving and serving His church. He's basically saying that the way we can know that we know God is that if we are doing these things. We have to be careful here though and not not hear John is saying, hey, if you do these things, if you live a holy life and you really love people, then you're a Christian. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that if you really know God, you have to get the order right. He's saying if you really know God, then you will really love the church. And you'll really love holiness. That's his point. He's saying like James that faith without works is dead. So we talked last week about the moral test in 1 John 3. Now we're going to move to the relational test. I've said this many times. Remember the three tests? He gives moral tests, relational tests. Who remembers the third one? Thank you, Justin. Ten points for Justin. Relational, moral, doctrinal. Tests. These are the tests and three tests in the, uh, the letter of 1 John. And like a bee buzzing around three flowers, John is just coming back to each of these tests again and again and again, really in no specific order. Last week was the moral test. This week he moves again to the relational test in chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. So if you have your Bible, 1 John 3, 11 through 18, the relational test. The main point of this text is that our love for each other should reflect Jesus' love for us. Our love for each other should reflect Jesus' love for us. The relational test is about how we see and treat other people in the church. When he says brothers, please hear that as meaning church and not just the guys in the church. It's a word, and, and you can fact check this with Mason later, our Greek scholar in residence. The word Adelphoi can mean brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, it's not just like, hey, love the guys. No, it's, it's an inclusive term to mean all the people in the church. So when he says brothers, please read that and hear that as church. Brothers equals church. So the relational test is about how we see 
The brothers, the church, how we treat them. Do we love them or hate them? This is really interesting. There's only two categories for John. There's loving the church and there's hating the church. There's not a third category. We'll see that. Do we help them or ignore them? Do we serve them or use them to serve ourselves? John is saying in this text that if God's love really lives in us, then we'll love the people Jesus died for. And we, in a sense, will die for them too. The main point is that our love for each other should reflect Jesus' love for us. So let's read this text. John, 1 John 3, 11-18. Then we'll break it into two sections. First, 11-15, where John says, Don't be like Cain. And then 16-18, where John says, Do be like Jesus. So don't be like Cain, this Old Testament figure of Cain. Do be like Jesus. So he's going to draw a contrast for us between Cain and Jesus, as we'll see. 1 John 3, 11-18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life living or abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The main point of this text is that our love for each other should reflect Jesus' love for us. Number one, John says, don't be like Cain. Don't be like Cain. Notice in verse 11 that John begins by saying that the command to love one another is the message you have heard from the beginning. The message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So the love command, it's interesting here that the love command, this command to love one another, is so basic to real Christianity that John actually equates it with the message. You should be thinking, well, the message is what? The gospel. The message is the gospel. But here he says, this is the message you have heard from the beginning. That we should love one another. So he so equates the command to love with the gospel that it's inherent to basic, real, genuine Christianity. In other words, John links them so closely that you can't have one without the other. You cannot say, I believe the gospel and ignore this command. You can't. And you can't obey this command without the gospel. The message is the gospel that creates a life, a love. Do you see that? The message is a a gospel of love that creates a life of love. In other words, John is saying that the command to love one another isn't an optional part of our walk with Christ. It's fundamental, non-negotiable. Without loving one another, you don't have the real thing. Failing to love means failing to understand the gospel. When the gospel is truly received, it changes us into people who love. There was a book written several, many, many years ago, probably 20 years ago now. Uh, It was titled, Dan Kimball, I think was the author. Wouldn't recommend it, by the way, but the title's interesting. Uh, The title was, I like Jesus, but not the church. Right? And, And he's trying to say, you know, you need to like the church too. And that's what John is saying. You can't say, you can't say, I'm with Jesus and be indifferent or, or, or cold, not connected to, not in a formal, loving relationship. We call, it, we call that church membership. Not in a formal, loving relationship, covenant relationship with the church. You can't say, I love Jesus and be cold towards His people. He says, the message, the message means loving one another. This is the message they've had from the beginning. 
This is the message you've had from the beginning. In other words, it's something they've heard before. John isn't writing them something new. He's not writing to load them up with new commands like the false teachers who said they had this new revelation and new burdens for the people to bear. John is giving the churches something he already gave them. He's saying that real Christianity has always meant loving the church. So these teachers who were saying, hey, you need to come out from the church and believe what we're saying and do this thing with us, those, those guys are false because they're not loving the church. They're disrupting the unity of the church. They're fracturing the church. He's saying you can't do that. You cannot claim to know God and not love the church. You can't do it. Friends, you can't do it. You can't claim to know God and have no love for the church. Amen? Amen. You're like you're supposed to say that. You're a pastor. <laughs> well, I hope I'm being faithful to the Bible. The Bible says this. As we're going to see, it says it even in stronger terms as we go along. Verse 12, John brings up Cain. This is serious stuff. He brings up Cain. Cain is not one of the heroes of the Bible. He brings up Cain of all people to give an example of the opposite of what he's talking about here. The opposite of loving one another is being like Cain. Genesis 4, we learn that Cain was one of the sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, two brothers. Cain became angry because God didn't accept his offering, but accepted his brother Abel's offering. In his anger, Cain planned and then carried out the murder of his brother. And when God confronted him about it, he just shrugged his shoulders and said, none of, none of my business. My brother's life is no concern of mine. Am I my brother's keeper? Interestingly, both, both Cain and Abel brought gifts to God. They both brought an offering to God. There's only two reasons why, why they would do that, why we would do that, why any of us would bring an offering to God, why we would give to God. We either are going to give to God out of gratitude for His grace or to earn His grace. I can't think of another reason why we would ever give something to God. We're either grateful for His grace or we're trying to gain His grace. We're trying to gain favor, gain blessing. Cain's reaction to his offering being rejected shows us that his gift was trying to earn God's blessing, whereas Abel's gift was a response to God's blessing. Cain was furious at God and furious at Abel because he didn't get what he wanted out of God. He was giving to get something. When he didn't get something, he got mad. We know where our hearts are when we react with anger and rage when we don't get what we want from God or from others. John's point is that the world thinks and acts like Cain. The world thinks and acts like Cain. So the church should be prepared for their rage. Verse 13, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised that you live in a world full of Cains, a world, a world full of people trying to earn favor from God, trying to barter with God. I do this and then God should do this. I give to God. I give to the church. I give to the poor. Therefore, God should bless me. And when it doesn't, then I'm angry and I'm full of rage and I'm grumpy. We live in a world full of Cain's, so we shouldn't be surprised when a world full of Cain's treats us like Cain treated Abel. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. John is saying be prepared for persecution. Be prepared, church. Be prepared to be treated like Abel because the world is full of Cain's. He's also drawing a contrast, though, between Cain and the church. Verses 14 and 15 go on to say that those who don't love the church are like Cain. 14, we know that we pass out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother, like Cain, is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Those who don't love the church are like Cain. They live in the realm of death. They have a murderous spirit in them. This is strong language. Do you, do you see how confrontational John is being? And I don't know where you guys are at. I, I think most of you love the church, but I don't know. <laughs> and by the way, you know, don't go text your friends who weren't at church this morning like, Oh, you're like Cain. You're a murderous spirit within you. No, that's not what I'm saying. We all miss church sometimes. I would argue we only miss because we're sick or we're out of town. 
There are reasons we miss church. There are reasons that we can't be involved as we want to be. What, what I'm talking about, what he's talking about, is that there are those, and, and this, this, this impulse lives in all of our hearts, there are those who would prefer to live life by ourselves rather than commit our lives in sacrificial ways with another group of people called the church, our brothers and sisters in Christ. He's saying, this is confrontational stuff, because he's saying, if that's, your, if, if that's you, and that impulse inside of all of us is, is like Cain. It's a murderous spirit. It's from the realm of death. Whoever does not love abides in death. He's talking about people who are alive. Okay, living people who have a certain posture towards the church actually live, that was the microphone, in the realm of death. (laughs) Good one, Matt. People who have that kind of posture, whether outwardly and obviously, or just kind of in their hearts undercover, that kind of posture towards the church live in the realm of death. And they have a murderous spirit within them. This is confrontational stuff. Do you see how important the church is to John? Do you see how important the church is? Period. John is simply echoing his teacher Jesus, of course, who said, you remember what he said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. That was Jesus talking. Jesus is saying that the kind of anger, rage, and mocking attitude that fills a murderer's heart fills all of our hearts. In a sense, he says that the same hellish things that drive people to murder can live in any of our hearts. He's saying we may not be that much different from Cain. This is what John means when he says, Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. John is saying that not loving people, not loving the church, isn't a morally neutral act. It's deadly and evil and hellish and reveals that death still lives in you. But, thankfully, John says here in this passage, in verse 14, that we can know whether that's us or not. We can know whether that, that we fall into that category. Verse 14, look at the little test there. We know we have passed out of death into life. Because? What's the because? How can we know? How can you know that you're not this Cain-like person? Because we love the brothers. Because we love the brothers. So do you love the brothers and sisters? Do you love the brothers and sisters? If you do, then you're not like Cain. You're like, John, but I just don't do enough. Okay, we can all do more. That's not the point. Do you love the brothers? Is there a, as we're about to see in a moment, is there a, a concrete, tangible, deliberate, sacrificial commitment to the church of Jesus Christ? Are you formally, formally connected to the church, or do you just kind of show up when you can? Is there a formal covenantal commitment to a, a, a local church, a specific body of believers, a family of faith? If so, then we can know that we've passed out of death into life. If not, then you're left to wonder. You're left, this text is, is, is for you to consider whether you really love the church or not whether you live in the realm of life or the realm of death. Do you see how much is at stake in how we view the church? Love for the church proves we're like Abel rather than Cain. John is saying that apathy toward the church means that we still live in the realm of death. He's saying that holding grudges against other believers and not letting things go, not forgiving, not doing everything in our power to reconcile with someone who's hurt you in the church is serious business. We can't make someone reconcile with us, can we? But we can do everything in our power to reconcile. We can forgive. We can 
show mercy. We can let go of grudges. John is saying that comparing and competing ourselves with other church members is deadly stuff. That jealousy and bitterness and envy and seeking revenge have no place in the church of Jesus Christ. That's the realm of death. That's where Cain lives. That's the world. That's not what our teacher Jesus taught us. That's not what He did to us or for us. We know we've left the realm of death and live in the realm of life because we, we're not perfect in our love. We struggle. There's disagreements. There's sin in the church. But we do everything in our power to love and serve and forgive and maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why? Because we live in the realm of life. We live in the kingdom of God right now. We are the expression of God's kingdom on the earth. We don't live like Cain. Rather, we live like Jesus. And that's where John turns next. Number two. So number one, don't be like Cain. Then number two, do be like Jesus. 16 through 18. Instead of being like Cain, we should be like Jesus. Verse 16. By this we know love that He, Jesus, laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Cain revealed his hate by killing. Jesus reveals his love by dying. Do you see the contrast that John is setting up? Cain kills because he hates his brother. Jesus dies because he loves his brothers. Don't be like the one, do be like the other. True love, John says, means giving up life, not taking it. It means sacrificing for others, not consuming others for ourselves. True love dies, not kills. By this we know love. By this we know love. We all love love. We all love love. Mark Dever says that nothing in our culture is more highly valued but more poorly understood than love. We all love love. But here John tells us what true love looks like. By this we know love. By this we know love. And notice, just in passing, there's no talk of feelings in this passage. I'm not saying that we can't feel affection. I think affection is great and from God for Him and for others. Affection is good and right and holy. And I think where true love lives, there will be affection. But he says that the way we know love is through behaviors, through action, through things we do. By this we know love, that He, Jesus, laid down His life. We know love when we see sacrifice. How do we know what love is? How do we know what true love is? Well, he says very plainly, the only place to look to find true love is by looking at Jesus' death on the cross for us, for our sins, that He laid down His life for us. So if we want to begin to understand true love, we have to look at Jesus on the cross. Why is it so loving that Jesus hung on the cross? Because we don't deserve it. God created us in His image, We've rebelled against Him in a million ways, decided that our way is better than His way, preferred created things over the Creator so that we deserve His judgment. We actually have earned His judgment, but in mercy He sends Christ to live a life that we could never live, die on the cross to take the wrath of God that our sins deserve, rise again on the third day, victorious over sin, Satan, and death, uh, ascend to the right hand of the Father where He reigns over the entire universe and promises to come back and save and rescue everyone who turns away from their sins and puts their faith in Him. If we believe that, then we have entered into true love. By this we know love. By looking at the cross, by looking at what God did for us in Jesus on the cross, we know love. It's love because Jesus' death on the cross is love because we deserve the opposite. And that's the problem with many of us and certainly the culture we live in is we think we deserve a lot better than we actually do. 
We deserve judgment. Jesus comes and takes our judgment. We deserve wrath. Jesus comes and takes our wrath. We deserve death. And Jesus comes and dies for us. He takes our death. We deserve punishment. Jesus comes to give forgiveness. We deserve justice. Jesus comes and gives us grace and grace and grace and grace and more and more grace. By this we know love. To begin to understand true love, we have to look at Jesus on the cross. But notice we saw this last week. John isn't interested here in giving us a systematic theology of the cross. He's using theology to teach us how to live. This is very instructive for us, by the way. If theology is an end in itself, then we've missed the point. Like, this is why Paul later says, knowledge puffs up. Our heads get bigger, but love builds up. The, those who really understand the purpose of theology start to not only love the sound doctrine and theology, but they also start to live a life that matches the things they love, the truth, the ideas laid out for us here in Scripture. That's what John is doing. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So the cross, the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ for our sins, the doctrine of the cross, actually what John is doing, actually means we should live radically sacrificial lives. In other words... John is saying that Jesus' death comes with a moral imperative. Did you see the word ought? There's an oughtness. You ought to do this. Not, you know, you, you can, you know, if you have time, <clears throat> if you're able, you can love people. No, he says you ought to. Because of Jesus' death, you ought, you should lay down your life for the brothers. In other words, if you don't do this, then you're disobeying. You're doing something wrong. This isn't a suggestion or a, a best practice. The love command is a necessary result of Jesus dying for us. Jesus' love for us demands that we love one another. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We ought to do this. So what is love according to John? Well, it's first seen on the cross. But as we look at the cross, as we look at Jesus dying on the cross, then we're compelled. There's this oughtness, this this demand, this should, this moral imperative that wells up in our hearts. Actually, this thing that we want to do, not that we should, that we want to do this, we want to give up our life for the good of others. We want to serve people rather than consume people. We're on the lookout for how to help others. We're always scanning. We're scanning the church membership. We're scanning the room. We're scanning the church directory. We're scanning our friendships. We're looking for ways to help others instead of looking for how to use others or how to tear others down. We're looking for ways to build others up and strengthen others. So, friends, are you more concerned with how others are loving you or how you are loving others? Are you more... And I struggle with this all the time. Do you think more about how you're being treated or about how you're treating others? Do you... Do you Spend most of your time thinking about how you can serve or how you're being served. John says here plainly that because of Jesus' death, we must lay down our lives for the brothers. That we should love in a way that is sacrificial. True love, he says, is dying so that others can live. Dying so that others can live. Are you more concerned with how others love you? or how you're loving others. Be wary of a love that costs you nothing. Husbands and wives, be wary of a love that costs you nothing. Friends, single friends, roommates, be wary of a love that costs you nothing. Because of Jesus' death, we ought to lay down our lives. Lay down our lives for one another. Now, interestingly, and this is where we're going to spend the next last bit of our time together, John does something interesting. So he, he states this, you know, this doctrine of the cross, the reality of the cross, and then this moral imperative. Jesus died, therefore we should die for one another. And then 17 and 18, he draws an application from this. 17 and 18, he, he applies this, this truth and this command in a very specific way. 
he applies this principle of sacrificial love in a specific way. He says in verse 17 that love, love, true love, gospel love, means using the resources we have to bless those in need. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And then verse 18, he says, Our love must be revealed through deeds, not words. By this, excuse me, that's verse 19. 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So John is drawing a specific application from this principle of sacrificial love. And his application, it's really interesting, his application is about what we do with our stuff. Now, are there other ways we can love sacrificially? Yes. But right here in this text, what John says is, if you understand the cross, and if you're following this moral imperative to love one another, then it will result in a a different way of viewing the things that you own. If you have the worldly goods, if you have worldly goods, and you see people in need, but you close your heart against them, how can you say you've understood any of the... How can you say you've understood verse 16? How does God's love live in you? If you aren't living with open hands with the things that you have. He wonders how a person can claim to to know the love of God if they aren't using their resources to bless others. How can the love of God live in you? He says, verse 17. Now, because this is where John goes with his application, it's where I want to go as well. Sacrificial love for the church means sharing what we have with those in need. I'm primarily thinking here about how we share our money or financial goods. You're like, John, I don't have an income. I'm in college. I'm a grad student. I don't even know what money is. Okay, that's fair. One day you will, I hope, I pray. But right now, I'm certain that you have things you could share with others. Primarily, I'm thinking about your time and your talents. And by the way, if if this is you, college students in particular... There are always things that need to be always things that need to be done around this church building. You're like, I don't have any money, I can't give any money. Well, we need your time, we need your efforts, we need your muscles, we need your, your gifts, your abilities, your creativity. There are things that could be done around here that you, around here that you could do. So as I get into this for a few moments, I'm, I'm talking about money, I'm talking about financial goods. Don't think this doesn't apply to you if you don't have an income. There's lots I could say about giving. There's lots I could say about sharing our resources. But I want to talk here about something. It dawned on me this week. I don't think I've ever talked about this in a sermon. So here we go. Wish me luck. Let's talk about the principle of the first fruits. The first fruits. Okay? Deuteronomy 26. Go to Deuteronomy 26. You're like, John, we're going to the the Old Testament to talk about giving? Absolutely. These things, Paul says, were written down for our instruction. Well, what about tithing? I'll get there in a minute. Just hold your horses. Let's talk about this principle in the Old Testament called first fruits. Deuteronomy 26, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. It's a bit lengthy, so bear with me. I'll read fast, you listen fast. Okay? Deuteronomy 26. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit first fruits of the ground which you harvest from, from your land the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall put it in a basket and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make His name to dwell there. Verse 3, And you shall go to the priest who is in the office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. Verse 5, and you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean, Aramean was my father. That's Abraham. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a, a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And He brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. When you have finished, verse 12, when you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the land, or excuse me, in the third year, which is in the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. The first fruits. The first fruits. Why did God ask the Israelites to give some of the first fruits of their produce? So the harvest comes in, says there in the first part. You take the first of the fruit of the land, you put it in a basket, and you bring it to the priest at the tabernacle, later the temple. Why? Why would God set it up this way? Why would God ask Israel to give some of their first fruits? Well, if you're a farmer, which you're not, you would know that you, you don't know what your income is until the whole harvest comes in. You don't know what your income is for the whole year until the whole harvest comes in. So naturally, if we were farmers, we would think, okay, we're going to bring in the whole harvest, see, see how it did this year. Was it good? Was it medium? Was it bad? See what the harvest was like, and then out of that we can figure out what we can give, what we can give to the Lord. Naturally, we'd always, we would usually always do it that way. We'd probably decide that that would be the best, wisest, most strategic way to give. Bring the harvest in, then decide what we can give after the harvest comes in. That would seem like the natural thing to do, but God actually says don't do it that way. <laughs> God says don't do it that way. He says to give of the first fruits before the Israelites knew how big their harvest would be. Before the whole harvest. He says give some of the first of the fruits. So the harvest would be a, a season of weeks, maybe a month or more. Before the whole harvest comes in, take some of the first of the fruit, put it in a basket, bring it to the priest. Why? Why would he want, why would he want first fruits? Why would, he, why would he not do things the way we would think most strategic or wise? Well, think of it. If we give out of the surplus of what we have, it's just giving what we can afford to give without changing anything about our life. Do you see that? If we only give out of any surplus that we may have, then it changes nothing. It changes nothing in our lives. It changes nothing in the way we live. God says He doesn't want us to give out of our leftovers, but to give out of the heart of our income. To give past the place we think we can afford to give. To give in a way that changes the way we live. To give sacrificially. To give until it hurts. If we only give out of the surplus, then our giving doesn't affect the way we live. But our giving should affect the way we live. It should be evident in our lives that we value God more than stuff. So giving should affect the way we eat, the way we dress, where we vacation, how we vacation, what clothes we wear, what technology we, we buy, what cars we drive, what, what houses we live in. What we do with our stuff reflects what we think about God. So the principle of the first fruits is teaching us that if we give out of our surplus in a way that, in a way that, t- that doesn't touch the way we live, then our giving is self-centered rather than God-centered. Of course, also, if, if we only get out, give out of the surplus, then what happens when there is no surplus? <laughs> when hard times come, and this is hard times for many of us, the economy is just, I don't understand it. I don't know what inflation is, right? All I know is the interest rates are high and everything's more expensive. Amen? College students are like, it doesn't apply to me. It will one day. Everything's hard right now. So, so if there's not a surplus but we've chosen to give out of the surplus, and when hard times come, then we won't give. We won't give. But the principle of the first fruits says that we, we give out of scarcity, not surplus. You can see 2 Corinthians 8, for an example, the New Testament church that practiced this principle, I believe. It says that in their poverty, poverty the Macedonian churches, in their poverty, they gave abundantly. Paul says, in their poverty, they gave abundantly. 
We give out of scarcity, not surplus. Giving the first fruits mean that we, means that we trust God to provide everything we need. We give to God first, trusting that God will then give, the things, give us the things that we need, even if we don't get the things that we want. Giving out of the surplus is how we usually think, but it means putting ourselves first. Giving the first fruits means putting God first in our giving. Do you put God first in your giving? Do you put, you're like, John, again, I don't have an income. Okay. Do you put God first in the way you organize your weekend? You have all day Saturday to do something. Sunday afternoon, the evenings, do you give, do you think about how you could serve and give sacrificially to others with your time and your talents? If you don't have an income, if you do have an income, is God first? Are you giving out of the heart of your income or out of what may be left over after you pay for all the things that you want? All the things that you may think you need. Deuteronomy talks about the principle of the first fruits as a way we, we test whether we trust God or not, whether we really trust Him. It also talks about where we should give and how much. I'll do this very quickly. Verse 12, you might have noticed this. This word, this word that everyone loves. When you finish paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. So, first off, notice that he says we give. It talks about giving to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Let's break that down really simply because we don't have Levites around here. Amen? The Levites were the priests. So he's talking about giving to the ministry, giving to those who are teaching the Word of God and shepherding the people of God. We give to the ministry and the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. We can throw the orphan. I don't know why he doesn't mention the orphan, by the way, because all through the Pentateuch, there are those categories mentioned. Somehow orphans are left out here. The sojourner, immigrants, fatherless, um, I guess he does mention the father, the orphan, just doesn't use the word orphan, the fatherless. The widow, the poor is the one he doesn't mention. There it is, the poor. He doesn't mention the poor by name. But that's what these people are. The sojourner, the orphan, the widow, and then the poor are those who don't have sufficient resources to meet their needs. And he lumps it in there as one of the main categories we give to. We give to the Levites and we give to the poor. We give to the Levites and we give to the poor. I think a lot of times, New Testament churches we, we may be quick to give to the ministry, but slow to think about how we can give to the poor. I'd love to talk more about that. I may, I may do a sermon on that next week. Stay tuned on that. We'll see what happens. We give to the Levites. We give to the ministry. We give to the poor, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. We give to those who are teaching the Word of God, shepherding the people of God, and those who have needs, material needs. Those, those who keep watch over us spiritually and those who are materially in need. But how much? Well, again, how much is mentioned here? The tithe, the, the tenth, 10%. And you're like, well, the New Testament doesn't command Christians to tithe. And I would say, yes, absolutely. It does not command uh, Christians to tithe, to give 10%. But that doesn't mean tithing can't be a useful principle in our giving. The argument, off, uh, the argument often goes like this. If God expected the Old Testament people of God to give a tenth, and by the way, it was more than a tenth. If you put all the numbers together, it was actually more. Um, then should those under the covenant of grace, those under the cross, right? Should those who know Christ and have the Spirit of God liver, literally living inside of us, should we think of this in any less terms? Should we assume that our call is to give less? Now, I don't want to be legalistic and put burdens on you that the Bible doesn't. But I will challenge you to think carefully about your percentages. Jesus and the apostles never told us not to tithe. And I have a feeling that most of us can afford to give more than the average 3% that American Christians give to the church and the poor. The tithe can be a good starting point for our giving. Randy Alcorn, in his little book, The Treasure Principle, compares tithing to a baby's first steps. They aren't their, their last steps or even their best steps, but they're a good place to start. He says tithing can be like training wheels, a mechanism to help you start giving. After a while, you don't need the wheels. So it seems wise to start our giving at 10% and see where God takes it from there. College students, grad students, young folks... Um, you're like, I don't have much money or any money. Okay, well, what you have, start thinking in terms as, uh, of tithing as a baseline. 
Think about Luke 19 when Zacchaeus tells Jesus he'll give 50%. Jesus doesn't stop him. <laughs> he doesn't say, oh, slow down, Zacchaeus. Slow down with that 50% talk. So the question, if I could just summarize, the question isn't how much we have to give, but how much can we give? Do you see the difference? How much we have to give, but how much can we give? Back in Deuteronomy 26, Moses says that the gift must be accompanied by this testimony. That's the big part of that text, verses 5 through 11. When they brought their basket of the first fruits to the priest, they were supposed to give a testimony uh, and re- literally recite the gospel, if you will, how God had saved them and delivered them out of Egypt and given them this land. They were to recount the grace of God toward them when they brought their gifts. Why? To remind them that everything they had, everything in that basket and everything they would get after that, everything they had was a gift of grace. Everything was a result of the generosity of God. So we, like them, like they, must connect our giving to the gospel. Everything we have is a gift. So when we give, we must connect our giving to the gospel. When you write a check or punch in the numbers online or, or give to the poor or serve others with your time, connect it to the gospel. Everything we have is a gift. The things we have aren't really ours. Our talents, our time, our health, our education, our money, it's not ours. You're like, no, I worked really hard for this. Okay, who gave you those talents? You're like, I worked really hard to get those talents. Who gave you the health? Who gave you oxygen? Who gave you life? (laughs) Everything you have is from God. Everything. Therefore, everything we have is a result of grace. Everything. So when we give, we're saying, I only have, I only have this as a result of your grace. I only have what I have because of the generosity of God. I said earlier that we should give until it hurts. We give out of our scarcity, not our surplus. You know, <clears throat> but it shouldn't hurt our hearts to give. It should hurt our lifestyle, but not our hearts. Jesus says in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our treasure follows our heart. Our treasure follows our heart. In other words, we invest in the things we love the most. Tim Keller says it this way, quote, Whatever your heart most treasures will be where your money goes most effortlessly. <clears throat> you see that? I have a book problem. Amen. It's getting better, I think. <laughs> um, this is why when I enter bookstores, I enter bookstores with fear and trembling because I know, you know, if I go in there with my wallet, I could get myself in trouble because I love books. So I want to spend whatever I can on them. But when we give, the reason I do that and the reason you do that in other various ways is when we give to what we most love, it doesn't even feel like spending. We have to be careful not to spend too much. Jesus is saying that our giving shows us where our heart rests. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Your heart will follow your treasure. What you most value, what you most love, what, you most are, what you're most excited about, that's where your money's going to follow. So one of the ways we can discern whether our relationship with God is kind of transactional, like Cain's, you know, I give to God hoping that He'll give to me. Whether your relationship with God is impersonal, you know, I do these things and He loves me back. Or whether it's personal, whether it's real or fake. One of the ways we can discern that is whether we give joyfully to the Lord. If our relationship with God is is based on His grace, whether we've, when we've actually experienced His grace, we'll love to give. We'll have no problem with giving. We'll give beyond what we can afford to give. We won't see it as a big deal. We won't, uh, you know, hem and haul about it. We won't get upset about giving to the church or to the poor. We'll give because we want to give. And if we can't give joyfully and sacrificially, if we choose not to give joyfully and sacrificially, then something's wrong with our relationship with God. That's what Jesus says. Your treasure, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Your heart follows your treasure. Or your treasure reveals where your heart is. Now the only thing that can motivate this kind of giving, just as it did in Israel, the, the only thing that, kind of, that can motivate this kind of sacrificial, first fruits kind of giving is by understanding gospel grace. Understanding that we don't deserve anything and that God rescued us nonetheless. So we look to Jesus on the cross. When we realize that Jesus laid down His life for us, we'll gladly give till it hurts for the good of others. When we remember that on the cross, Jesus had everything taken away from Him for us, for our sins, that that on the cross God gave His Son His own blood for us, we'll want to do the same for others. 
So we look at the cross. As we look at the cross, we realize this is what God gave for us. Then our hands begin to open and we're like, okay, I'll give whatever I can, whatever I need to give to the church, to the poor. Jesus gave to the point where he lost his life. Jesus died. Jesus gave so much he died. Jesus' giving killed him. It really hurt Jesus to give. He gave until he died. This kind of love is what makes our hearts want to treasure him. If he did that for us, then we can give till it changes our lives. We can give to church members, to the ministry, to the poor, joyfully. We can give under any circumstances, in a strong economy or a bad economy. We can give sacrificially out of scarcity, not surplus. Even if we don't have an income, we can find ways. We will strategically find ways to give of our time and talents to serve others. Brothers and sisters, be aware of a love that costs you nothing. Be aware of a love that costs you nothing. John is telling us that God's love creates sacrificial giving, that real love is painful, deliberate, generous, focused on the good of others. He wonders, he, back in 1 John 3, he wonders how we can even claim that the love of God lives in us if we aren't readily sharing our resources with others. How can we claim to know the love of God if we aren't loving sacrificially? So, again, are, are we more concerned with how, lo- how others love us or how we love others? Are we more concern- concerned with how others love us or how we love others? Real love means dying so others can live. Real love will result in sacrificial giving to the ministry, to the poor. Real love means sacrificial living, dying so that others can live. Brothers and sisters, are you dying to love? Are you dying to love? Are you dying to love the brothers, the sisters? Let's pray together. Father, by this we know love. That He, Jesus, laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for the sisters. We all long for love. We long for love. We are so desperate for love. Help us, Lord Jesus, to look to the cross this week during the, the long, hot days of summer when work is stressful and relationships are hard and sin is crouching at the door, when finances are scarce and things just aren't going the way we would prefer them to go. Help us to look to the cross. Help us to rest in the love of Christ for us. And may your love create in us big hearts full of love that overflow with sacrificial love toward others. Give us wisdom on how to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.